Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 174, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This week, one district says if your child is exposed to COVID, it's the parent's decision, not the school's, whether or not that student wants to quarantine. And we're looking on the bright side. What good things has COVID-19 taught us? Stay with us. Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, the fantastic Jennifer Saravallo is here talking about her latest book titled Connecting with Students Online. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here. Today is November 15th, 2020, and I'm joined by my friend, principal, and co-host, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing? I am pretty good today. I think I am much um, more positive and a little more rested this past week. Well, that's a good thing, always. And I've been keeping up with um, your son's football team, high school football team. They are now in the playoffs. They continue to be undefeated for the season. So this is exciting for you guys, right? This is exciting and nerve-wracking at the same time. I mean, did, did I hear this right? And maybe the rules have changed along the way. If This is what makes me nervous. They're undefeated. They're rocking and rolling. They're pushing through the playoffs. If the team finds itself in a position that it can't play because of COVID, knock on wood, because they've, they've been great all season, what, what happens? We're out. You're out. Like, it's that, that there's no, like, let's reschedule, let's push it, even, like, no. three days. Like, it is, like, if you no. cannot be there, that is the state rules. Last weekend, I believe there were three games that were canceled, and those teams had automatic moves to the next round. That is heartbreaking. I, I hope it's very, very upsetting. Yeah, that is. I hope that uh, doesn't play out like that, really, for any school. I mean, you don't want to see that happen for any kids that are, you know, having a good season. I mean, we've been and, very, very fortunate. And, and so, I guess at this point, now that it's you know do or die, I imagine the coaches are just really riding the kids, saying you have to stay isolated, right? I, I don't know if they're riding them because. They came out full force from the very beginning. A lot of people might not realize this, but the majority of our football players are virtual learners. So oh, they are okay. not mingling within the buildings at all. They Just about every last one of them, especially if they're starting, um, they're a virtual learner. That's number one. Number two, if you go back to a few episodes, we discussed um, the different procedures that they put in place starting in the month of June for summer workouts. Mm -hmm. And there's a rotating schedule. They're never all in that locker room or in the workout areas all at the same time. And it has become habit and routine. And I don't think they're going to get away from those practices um, throughout the end of the season. The other thing is that they're being really careful about sending messages through our parent group and just reminding players to you know, wear their mask, to wash their hands and to put the team first. And I think that the boys are really committed. I have to commend the parents as well, because from what I'm seeing, a lot of the outbreak numbers that we can talk about across the state, parents are, you know, being relaxed and allowing their children to hang out in social settings or even hosting uh, parties. Mm -hmm. But our our team, I'm, I'm really proud of the leadership from the coaches as really much putting their foot down. And I don't think they've had to chew anybody out or, you know, get it be uh, extreme at, at this point in the season, they've been practicing good practices and they want it. I, I they just really want it this year. I, I hope they get the state championship. They've been so close uh, for those who don't know in the past. I mean, they've, I guess, made it to the, to the finals twice now played the in the state championship yes yes right and so and it was a heartbreaking loss last season right so uh hopefully this is the year for them on the worrisome side though i've continued to track cases uh, around the state of mississippi um and of course we look at it on a school basis and as we mentioned mm -hmm. last week we kind of averaged out how we did the first five weeks with cases and how we did the second five weeks um, the second five weeks were much higher than the first five mm -hmm. weeks. And I'll, I will give you, again, the average numbers of cases per week for teachers now. And um, the second five weeks of school was 
218 cases of teachers, and then 394 cases for students. But this most recent week of data crushed those numbers. So this is not the trend we want to see. We already were watching it go up. The most recent week of numbers actually had 320 teachers actually contract COVID-19. We're not talking about quarantining. And then on the student side, 579. And again, this is statewide for the state that we're in, Mississippi. So Th- Listen, this is it's this devastating. Is scary. Yeah, this, this is scary. Yeah. I actually was put in a very tough position this past week. Um, I'm not sure how many districts handle their um, COVID protocols, but generally, if a parent or a teacher um, notifies me or our school of a positive result or exposure to someone who tested positive, our very first step is to notify. Um, our school nurse who happens to head our district um, COVID um, committee. And then she follows the steps for contact tracing or whatnot and determines who has to be isolated and quarantined and who does not. And the actual dates that they will be out of school, whether it's from work or, you know, from a student perspective. And this past week um, we found out that we played a team in basketball that had a student with a positive result, mm. which means the next day I had to go in along with my leadership team and identify um, who those players are, were, and who the coaches were and just what type of interactions they had and then determine who had to go home. And then of course, you know, for how long, and it wasn't a popular um, decision is what I found, but I was, um, very positive in the fact that, you know, when you look at just my school and in, in, for instance, and even the school where our children go, um, I believe there's 1500 children in that building. I have 600. Right. And so you can't be selfish. You can't, you know, um, you can't slide at all. And so our nurse was very uh, rigid and careful. And so we have a very small group um, of children that are at home quarantined, not aware of any of them testing positive. I, I don't um, understand those, the pushback, Christina. Like I, I you would think um, that people would be grateful that we immediately, I mean, like we stood at the front door and the back door and we caught them the moment they got off the bus. And if they came from the car rider line, they were put back in the car. Goodbye. <laughs> right. We'll give you a call and give you the information. If they came off of the bus, obviously we had to um, rush them to what we call our uh, containment room and then allow the nurse to follow her protocol. I don't make any decisions at all. I just assist in the procedures according to our district plan. And, um, yeah, there's a little pushback, but let me tell you about Mississippi and, of course, about the South. Baby, when you interfere with football season, mm-hmm. you will not be popular. Right. Now, you said this was the basketball team, though, right? But I guess some that's of- true. But remember, sometimes coaches coach more than one sport. Gotcha. Uh, OK, so so I see what you're saying. Yeah. And and it's interesting you say that about the whole idea of having to quarantine students who, you know, not necessarily tested positive, but probably have been exposed because they were in close contact with someone who did test positive. Mm -hmm. One of our superintendents in our state down on the uh, Mississippi Gulf Coast, Jackson County, he um, actually put out a letter this week and it was picked up by the news where he's saying that his students who have been near somebody who tested positive do not have to quarantine like he's gonna let that decision oh my goodness up to the parents Uh, give me your yeah your initial reaction is oh my goodness well like i said every district has a different plan you would think that they have a crisis or health or safety committee in place but it looks or appears that he is the chair of that committee Mm -hmm. and i think his decision is dangerous when I first learned of it, I was really just stunned and appalled and thought if my child attended that school and I wasn't informed or wasn't aware that he was in direct contact. And let's be clear, direct contact means 15 minutes or more mm-hmm. within close contact. He cites that would be upsetting. He cites statistics um, and he's a new superintendent for the county. He just apparently moved over in January um, Mm -hmm. from the state of Alabama. And it looks like he had some time as a superintendent in the state of Michigan as well. But he says he cites statistics that at one point positive COVID-19 cases amongst his students never exceeded 0.5%. 
so less than 1%. And he says he calculates that number by periodically taking the total number of COVID-19 positive cases in students over a two-week period and dividing that number by the district's total enrollment. And he says, when I was superintendent, this is quote, when I was superintendent in Michigan, we'd get up to 10, 15% of our students in one building that would have flu. We'd monitor the situation, he said. I was told here in Jackson County that even last year, flu numbers got as high as 20%. So are we really going to shut down our schools for a quarter of 1%, he asked, end quote. But I think we have to be more concerned. It's not just about the students, we need to be concerned about the teachers and the staff that interact with these children and then go home to their families. Right. It's a bigger picture here. Yeah. And, and it's all about, it spreads different. It, it spreads easy. Yeah. It's it's certainly an eyebrow raising perspective. And I guess if anything kind of bothers me is the fact that, I mean, I think things need to be decided at local levels and they need to be decided, you know, on a case by case basis. Mm-hmm. But Everyone's just kind of doing their own thing now. And and I'd be I'd be real interested in knowing how his teaching staff felt about those comments and if there was any type of conversation or survey that was taken that took place before he made that decision and then made it public. Yeah, that's a good question. But I mean, you know how hard it is on those, you know, that you have a job, you've got it. This is what we have to do. And, absolutely, and they're certainly not going to speak absolutely. out, you know, not but in let's, mid-year. But let's be realistic, though. Every every community is different. We don't know the demographics of that, com- of that community. Mm-hmm. And remember that some communities are being ravaged by um, COVID-19 and their vulnerable population, while others are not. Right. They right. might be having positive cases, but they might not have the large numbers of, you know, fatalities. So I think there's some pieces of information that we probably um, need to review before I just critically let judge him. But as a mother, not as an educator, not as an administrator, I was taken aback when I saw that story. Changing gears, Ed Surge had a recent story that was about, you know, what should we keep you know, what What are we doing now because of COVID that we should keep even when things get better, even when the, a vaccine, you know, is it administered across the country and we have this thing under control? Are there habits that we've now created yeah. that we should continue? Um, and this is always Absolutely. a fun discussion to have within your own industry, but it's also fun, like, to discussion to have, you know, on a bigger scale. Like, I, so many more meetings should happen via Zoom rather than hopping on a plane and traveling across the country. I mean, there's times where you need to interact face-to-face with people, but I think there'll be times where we don't, necessarily just fly around just to meet somebody it just we're we're way better at it now we're doing it remotely that's very true that's true when i think about um education in general i think there are some things that we wish we had in place before um being able to offer virtual learning making sure that every child has access to a device and connectivity has to stay um Having ramped up um, protocols for uh, disinfecting and sanitizing, you can never have too much of that. And I just think some of the items that schools have now um, been forced to purchase, like foggers and, you know, setting the custodial schedule to stagger Mm -hmm. in order to sanitize areas that are, you know, they don't have students in, in, in uh, available at that time. So you can actually do a true deep clean except for just in the summertime, but weekly and regularly. I just think a lot of those practices are going to stay. I think that just like what you said, some of the Zoom meetings are, are to me, um, much more convenient, especially for, for if in my instance, I had a very important parent meeting last month. And I conducted that meeting on Zoom. I scheduled the meeting for 5 p.m. Even having that type of meeting face-to-face, a lot of times parents are not off work yet. And I was able to see that some people were in their vehicle, whether they were sitting at their job in the parking lot or whatever the case may be, they were able to participate because we did it on Zoom. Mm-hmm. And having the, you know, the presentation, being able to be seen on the screen, emailing them the documents ahead of time, all of those things, I think, make it a little bit more inclusive and make it available um, to our parents. I'm really proud on our instance over the last few weeks, we've been able to um, distribute over 500 Chromebooks to students. And I think that's going to make a huge difference in regard to how you handle snow and weather days. We may not see as many in the South, but think about those schools in Chicago and in Michigan and in the Northeast that have heavy snow days, blizzard days or whatnot, and they they miss school for X number of days. Well, now that all of these practices in place, 
teaching and learning can continue. And then it prevents us from having to add days on at the end of the year or take away days that are already scheduled off for teachers and students in order to make them up. That has that has been, I think, one of the most troublesome things over the years when we miss snow days or if we've had a tornado day. Um, and now even, for instance, right now, Should. we had to adjust our calendar and our teacher's last day for this contractual year is, I believe, June the 3rd. Wow. And that's way later than normal. Yeah. Should school districts get in the business of, and I don't, I, correct me if I'm speaking out of turn here, but should school districts be in the business of homeschooling? And what I mean by that is, you know, right now it seems like if you want to homeschool, you kind of go your own path. I don't even know what resources you really use if you're, if you're homeschooling your child. But should public school districts say, hey, you can continue to be virtual 100% and, and work with your parents and we'll provide the curriculum and we'll provide certain resources. Should that be something that continues a, a, an option to be virtual, even if we're not in a pandemic? That's, that's the first thing that I shared. Absolutely. But let's be clear. Virtual learning is not homeschooling. Homeschooling requires parents to purchase their own curriculum mm -hmm. and be responsible for ensuring their children are able to learn particular skills needed to earn a high school diploma. Virtual learning means you follow the curriculum and the state standards set forth by the State Department of Education. Right. You still must be assessed. You get a report card. You get teacher support, um, your materials, all of those things. When you homeschool, you have absolutely no connection to the school district. So, so and that's what I'm getting at. Should a parent be able to, you know, just have their child attend school through edgenuity. And, and it may be for a hundred different circumstances. Maybe my child just isn't well, good in the classroom around with other kids or, you know, and I feel like my child doesn't. I, I think to, that's know. a very tricky, slippery slope mm -hmm. because what we've seen across the nation this fall is many students who started off virtual or who are even virtual right now are not logging in like they should. They're not performing as they should. We're worried about the gap widening, um, whether they're losing out on um, skills that they need, depending on the grade level that they're in, their parents, if they have not lost their job, they're at work every day and they think their child is doing the assignment because they might have saw that they were logged into the screen before they walked out the door. Mm -hmm. But if they're not meeting the attendance policy and the grading policy, it's not helping them at all. Right. Uh, one thing they point out in the um, Ed Surge article is that they say, do what's right regardless of titles or job description. And they use something True. that I know is close to your heart, which is, you know, helping kids out in terms of, you know, social connections and sense of community and distributing food. And they point to the fact that when we had to, to do this, it, it wasn't just teachers that got involved in, in, you know, meeting those demands. It was bus drivers and paraprofessionals yes. and so forth within the district. Do you think there's more of an all hands on deck approach? And do you think that will continue post pandemic? I think it always existed. And I think you see it more in your high poverty school districts. Mm -hmm. um, we've always had the backpack programs for children we don't think are getting enough meals and we secretly provide their weekend meals in their backpack and send them on out the door on Fridays. We've always had for free and reduced programs, the summertime uh, feeding programs or the, the fruit and vegetable programs at different schools. And so I think everybody has always played a part. I think we stepped up together to figure out what to do when schools were shut down. Absolutely. But I have to give credit to those non-certified employees in every district in America. Have They have always um, stood in the gap and been right there to do their part. Bus drivers, um, drove administrators and child nutrition workers around in the spring to deliver meals for those that, you know, maybe live in county schools and unable to drive um, to their school to pick up a meal. They, they made it happen and they always have. And so they are heroes as well. I, I'm going to ask you a question that you may not have an answer to right now because it's, it's kind of putting you on the spot and I don't, I don't even know the answer right now. But what's the most positive thing about the pandemic? And it might be a question to ask a bunch of educators. I'm just curious. Like, what comes to mind? Is there anything that's just, like, this was good? I think the most positive thing that's come out of the pandemic is, is time. We've spent more time with our families because of sheltering in place or stay-at-home orders. Um, we've gotten to know each other again. We've played games and read books and watched movies and just, you know, really focused on the family um, more like it used to be. And when I think about when I was a child growing up, 
that the family unit was important. It was important to um, everybody be at home on time to have dinner together at the table. And families got away from that. We're so busy. We're we're doing so many things. And and I think it hurt the family unit. Mm-hmm. And I think that's gotten back in place. Um, and on the educational side, I think one positive thing out of it is that we have been forced to move into um, the technology-driven side that we should have been in and being able to provide all students with internet connectivity and devices to be able to, mm-hmm. you know, compete with with people across the world. Yeah, amen to that. And, and you know, you talk about the family. There was, there was a time, I guess it was somewhere in, in April, when we were all, like, literally locked down. Like, we weren't supposed to go anywhere except to get groceries or whatever. Mm-hmm. Those were in some weird – when I reflect on those days, those were some good times. I know that sounds weird, but – They it, were good times. We got to know each other again. Yeah, it's like – um you know, my little girl and my wife and I, like every day at, at five o'clock, we would basically stop what we're doing and we played a lot of board games. We cooked it. The weather was beautiful. I, we'd sit outside. Yes, we'd go on you long cooked walks, more you know? meals together. Yeah. Yes. I mean, so when I reflect on those times, I mean, it it wasn't all bad. And so, uh, yeah, I like that. I like, I like to think you saved a little money. I know the economy oh, yeah, was yeah. hurt, but cooking your meals and having better food choices. That was another good thing I think that happened for everybody. Again, Christina, it's always fun to chat and uh, good insight on uh, you know some of the positive things that have come out of the pandemic so far. Are you ready for today's bright idea? Oh, I can- I'm excited about it. Yes. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is a New York Times bestselling author of the Reading Strategies book. Jennifer Saravallo is also a three-time guest here on Class Dismissed. During her last interview, we talked to her about her book, Understanding Text and Readers, and it's actually our most listened to episode on the Class Dismissed podcast ever. Jen's newest release is called Connecting with Students Online, Strategies for Remote Teaching and Learning. A good portion of all proceeds from the book are being donated to helping children directly impacted by COVID-19. Jennifer Saravallo, welcome back to Class Dismissed. Thank you so much for inviting me, Nick. It's great to be back. This book, I mean, you. when did you start writing this and how quickly did you turn it around? Because it's been out for a few months, right? Yeah, that's kind of a crazy story. I, you know, in the spring, when everything shifted so quickly to remote instruction, I just had, I just was churning out ideas, mostly in my Facebook group um, and on other social media channels, just trying to support teachers with the craziness. And, you know, here's an idea for scheduling. Here's an idea for keeping your lessons brief. Here's an idea for conferring with kids. Here's, you know, um, and I was getting also a lot of feedback from teachers in that group and, you know, seeing my kids own teachers grapple with all of the different aspects of online instruction, uh, reading a ton, of course, of other people who had ideas to share um, and it really didn't occur to me to put this into a book. Uh, usually the books I write come from topics that I'm really passionate about and that I love and, and that I really ideas that I really want to spread. Online instruction has not been that for me. But um, in late July, I pulled my Facebook group, uh, which has now about 93,000 members in it, and just said, how can I help? You know, I know people are gearing up to get their plans together for the fall? What kinds of topics do you need support with? And there was just such an overwhelming response. Thousands and thousands of people responded within a few hours of, of things that they wanted help with. And there were things that I, I figured out how to do, like small group instruction and conferring and you know keeping schedules realistic and doable. Um, and then actually my publisher said, why don't you think about taking the stuff that you did in the spring, taking some of the stuff that people are asking for um, and putting a book together. Um, so this book did come together really quickly. Um, but, you know, it, it was ac- it's actually filled with stuff that not only did I find myself trying and feedback from teachers in the spring, but also I've been teaching online I've been teaching teachers online for a long time. I do webinars and online courses. And so it draws a little bit from that experience as well. I want to start by looking at how we're doing as as a country, as a society, as educators, um, kind of from 40,000 feet. And this is, of course, going to be your opinion. But what has changed in the world of online learning between when we started in March and to where we are now, and we're now in November? Well, you know, I think one thing I think about is that there are schools that are online schools by design that have existed before the pandemic. 
And they serve a very specific function for certain kinds of kids who learn best at home, um, you know, for parents who are traveling the world with their kids, for kids who are involved in performing arts and can't attend a regular school, or for kids who, for whatever reason, um, you know, if they're being bullied or where school is not a safe place for them and they're better off at home. Um, and so there are schools that exist that have figured out how to do this well, how to keep things engaging. Um, and so I think it's important to look to those people. Not This idea of online school is not brand new, but the idea of online school for everybody, for a lot of people, um, right. and this idea that you know, uh, we're trying to reach all kids in the same way that we reach them in the classroom, um, I think is, is, of course, really challenging. And it's so interesting to hear from neighbors and friends just how different kids' experiences are. Like some kids are thriving, you know, that they almost don't want to go back to school. They love being home. They're get, they have more, you know, time in their day to explore side projects and other interests. There's kids who are really floundering, um, who are just not connecting either because it's through a screen or, um, you know, something about their home environment is not conducive to, to logging in each day or, or they just literally can't connect because of Wi-Fi or an old device that keeps crashing. And it's really frustrating. And there's kids who are just like dealing with it. You know, it's like not their favorite thing, but they're, they're, they're just slogging through day by day doing what they, they've got to do. Um, so I, I just think it's, you know, experiences are varied. Kids' experiences are varied. And then we have really varied experiences with teachers. And I have found that um, while in the spring, a lot of the instruction was often asynchronous, like kids, you know, uh, choice boards being uploaded, videos being recorded and uploaded, kids sort of working on their own at their own pace. A lot of parents joking that they were homeschooling because there was a lot involved from the caregiver's perspective to manage the work. Right. What seems to have happened in the fall now is there's been a lot more synchronous instruction, live instruction. And I've seen a huge range. I've seen teachers who say that they're online with their kids for three hours a day. Some are doing a full school day, like an 8.30 to 3 o'clock school day. Some teachers are all remote. Some teachers are doing this kind of simultaneous model where they have, you know, half a dozen kids in front of them and then another dozen kids at home right. or, or vice versa. Some kids are in school some days, some are in school another. There's just so, so many different models out there and so many different experiences. And I think, um, you know, it's hard to speak universally about this um, because of that. Uh, I guess the one universal thing I'd say is that teachers are overwhelmed. They're being asked to do mm -hmm. more than they should be being asked to do. Um, and I think that this idea that we should just continue, like try to replicate school, just move it online, keep the same hours, keep the same curriculum, keep the same amount of work for students and for teachers um, is just not realistic. And let's try to give the educators out there listening some hope. Um, and, and I think that actually starts with early on in your book. I mean, you kind of talk about, you open up with this message about holding true to our priorities as we're in this online world. It's almost like you're trying to remind us of something, right? Yeah, absolutely. Let's remember what matters. Let's, let's remember what fuels us and fuels the kids. And let's also make sure that we put some heart, I think, into this, you know, screen could be very cold kind of uh, kind of instruction. And I think teachers are doing a really wonderful job with this, building connections, developing relationships with kids, making sure that we're taking care of their social and emotional well-being. Uh, my daughter's second grade teacher does mindfulness meditation with them when they come back from every break. It's really beautiful. Oh, and they're yeah. learning so many skills, just how to recenter themselves and, um, you know, breathe through breathe through frustration and handle frustration. Um, I also, you know, in this first chapter, talk about, look, here's, if we have to cut back, here's what we know works. It works to be clear, to be strategic, to focus, to make sure we spend a lot of time guiding practice. This was something that I think um, in the spring, just because, you know, people weren't set up with learning management systems and they weren't always set up with even a video conferencing platform. There were lots of challenges. Yeah. Um, I, what I saw was a lot of posting of assignments and not as much guiding practice. Again, it's hard to speak universally. I'm sure some people figured this out and did a, did, did a really great job of it in the spring. But this idea that we've got to make sure that we're getting on with kids, not just to direct instruct, but to really give 
an opportunity for them to try and to give them feedback, um, ways to collect information to see how kids are doing, assessment, right, and adjust our instruction. And then, of course, the, the ending message of this is balancing everything and not trying to do it all. Um, you know, some days it's going to be a lot more synchronous, some days asynchronous, some days we're going to do more whole class, some days it's going to be more small group. Overall, we just need to strike a balance and I think keep expectations in check. That's a method for administrators too. expectations in check. Yeah, no doubt. And, and I think as I watch, I have kids and, and watch them learning. And, and I live in a part of the country where we started traditional and now we've since switched to hybrid, which has to be somewhat of a, uh, I don't want to say nightmare, but challenge for, for educators because it's like they were going this way. And then suddenly now they're teaching um, like you described, where you're teaching half the class in person and half the class online almost simultaneously, and then they switch. And, and I've watched some of my my child's lessons where it's almost just like there's a camera in the room, but you, it's kind of behind all the other students. It's it's like you're just eavesdropping in on the classroom in, in some mm-hmm. cases. Um, so, and I guess the reason we're there right now is because teachers have kind of been jostled around, and it's all about time management, which you you dedicate a whole chapter chapter on in your book is like, how can we manage our time while we're trying to do this? And so what are some of your strategies there? I mean, what should a teacher be doing to kind of try to, like you said, streamline the process? Well, I want to start by saying that it's not always the case that teachers have choice over how they manage their time, which is one of the challenges. In places where teachers have choice, um, you know, that they're able to say, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take Friday and not be on live with my kids, for example, and just do conferences or, um, you know, on, on Wednesday afternoons, I'm going to have open office hours so that caregivers or kids can connect with me. Um, these, these decisions that a teacher makes about, um, how they organize their time are dependent somewhat on the parameters that the district sets for them, right? So, um, so I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to suggest that teachers aren't managing their time well, but rather that sometimes the, expectations from administration or from parents um, are maybe a little out of sync with what's realistic and, and possible to do. So my main my main message in this chapter is to make sure that we keep things in check. We manage our time in a way that protects time outside of class as well and that teachers are not working 16, 18-hour days. It's exhausting and not sustainable. Um, so I start off with, you know, thinking about pros and cons around being on live with kids and and doing pre-recorded lessons and where there's time savings, Um, different lesson types lend themselves better to different, um, you know, small groups, conferences, mini lessons, Um, depends, right? Do I need to be on live with my kids if I'm just reading a book aloud to them? Maybe not if I'm just reading, but if I'm engaging them in conversation, maybe I do. Do I need to be on live with them if I'm doing a short three-minute lesson? Maybe I could just record that and then use that time instead for doing more guided practice through conferences and small groups. Um, do my kids need, are they reaching out to me a lot on email or parents reaching out to me a lot on email with questions? Well, then maybe what I should do is just schedule that in as an hour block each day when people can come ask me questions. And then I set that limit and I'm not answering emails all night long. I'm just using that time. And that's when you can come ask me questions or that's when I'll respond to your emails if email is more convenient for you. Um, so it's really about mapping it out, mapping out a schedule with boundaries as much as possible. Um, But of course, I, you know, in this chapter, I sort of say this is how I would do it. Um, But unfortunately, some teachers don't have the flexibility or freedom to design their schedule in that way. So it sort of depends. You've been able to be an observer for about nine months now. And and I know you kind of break down the pros and the cons of asynchronous versus synchronous type lessons. I mean, at the end of the day, now that you've watched this for a little while, do you think there's a better way to go about this? Or is it a matter of blending them as needed? So yeah, I've not only been able to watch and observe, um, you know, different different lessons on the observer end, but I've also been teaching all spring and summer small groups and individual kids online. And what I've found is that when you can get kids in small groups and one-on-one, that's when they really come alive. That's when they smile. That's when you laugh together. That's when they work their hardest. That's when you can really hold them accountable to practicing the things that you're teaching. And so my preference would be to do more small groups and more one-on-one instruction synchronously and then do more of the whole class, more of the curriculum-based lessons, um, 
recorded. The other benefit to doing it recorded is that um, kids can watch and rewatch. And you can also develop a sort of like a library of little recorded lessons that you can send kids back to when you notice that they have issues. If it's all live, there's no going back to it, unless I guess if you record it and upload the recording. Um, and I've also witnessed a lot of tech glitches and I've experienced a lot of tech glitches too. And so one of the other things when you're doing a whole class live lesson is kids' internet cuts out, someone's dog starts barking and they miss it for a minute and then it's hard to go back and you don't really know that they've missed it. Whereas in one-on-one -on -one or small group instruction, you know when something glitches and you can go back and repeat yourself. Um, so that's, that would be, that would be the way I would design my schedule. I would spend most of my, my live teaching time pulling kids in small groups and one-on-one. -on -one, and I, and I offer a couple different ways to do that either, for example, by having a half hour once a week for each student and then going through multiple subjects during that time or, um, scheduling, you know, different days, predictable times when they're having a shorter reading lesson, a shorter writing lesson, a shorter math lesson. Of course, with middle school teachers who have very large, um, numbers of kids in multiple class periods, their schedule is going to be a little different based on the class periods, but I offer suggestions for all these different, um, situations in the book, but I think it's really about saying, yeah, where, where am I getting the most bang for my buck by being on live with them and then designing the schedule to make sure that those live instances um, are possible. Yeah. And as I was doing some show prep, um, I, I noticed in another interview, you talked about this, this one-on-one -on -one design and, and acknowledging that it doesn't work for everybody. And, and like you said, some teachers just may have too many students to do this, but I guess if you're just working with one class, it might just really make sense. And it might be a big time saver for you too. I guess you schedule, like you said, little half hour blocks, maybe where you're, you're checking in with each student on a one-on-one -on -one basis, and you can really connect with them when you're talking to them one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah, that's a, that's a big theme in the book, right, is the importance of connecting, especially in times when people are quarantining or have to stay isolated, and how important that is not just to their academic growth, but also to their emotional well-being, that they have that connection time. And it's it's just not the same when you're one of those tiny squares on a big screen with 28 other kids versus when you're one-on-one -on -one with your teacher. The, the ability to connect is just so different. And I would also say, you know, when we're in, in person with kids, it's easy to it's easy to get regular feedback to check in on how kids are doing just by circulating the room and peeking over shoulders and looking at their work or um, doing quick call and response or whatever it is. And we can adjust on the fly. I know I do, right? I'm always adjusting my, my whole class teaching based on the vibe in the room, the energy, how kids are doing. And when we're on live with kids, in a whole class setting, it's very hard to do that. I mean, there's some tricks, you know, like everyone has a whiteboard, they write it, they hold it up, you take a quick screenshot or scan it. Um, but it's, it's not the same as being, you know, the ability to get that regular feedback and adjust your instruction. And so, you know, the other, the other benefit, I think, to doing more small groups and one-on-one -on -one is that you get feedback from the kids as much as they get feedback from you and you see, you know, oh, this, you know, this strategy really isn't something they need right now, or I need to switch gears and move to a different goal because of what they're showing me with their work. Um, so it allows us to be more responsive and more flexible. And then with that responsiveness comes heightened engagement, which is another real challenge with online instruction for a lot of kids. We want them to be engaged. And a big part of being engaging is making sure we're teaching things that they're actually they actually need to learn. They actually need to work on, um, not just plowing through curriculum, um, you know, whether or not they're, they're with us or whether or not they're, they really want to, or need to learn what's in the curriculum. I was speaking to some parents this past weekend while I was um, watching a soccer game. And, um, you know, some like, it was like you described earlier, some of the students, uh, and parents are saying, Hey, my, my child's doing great. They've, they've got this under control. They really enjoy learning online. And then some others were saying my child, you know, has learning disabilities or ADHD and can't focus and, and just can't pay attention through the camera. And I guess my question to you is what should a teacher do if they feel like a student is slipping and they're not even really tuned into the class? I mean, is, is there an intervention that a teacher should be taking? That's a great question. And I think it's, uh, you know, so important to not make decisions based on everyone all the time, like keeping everybody doing the same thing. Everyone has the same task. Everyone has the same lessons. Um, one of the things they talk about in the 
uh, in the book is the universal design for learning. And one of their principles is that you give kids options for how they show what they know um, and you give kids options and how they access the information. So whether it's, you know, I'm going to read this story out loud, but you also have a link to it on Get Epic if you wanted to just go look at the pages as you're listening or reading it yourself. And I'm offering it as a recording. So if you want to go back and rewatch it later, you can do that too. Um, you know, or I want everyone to tell me what you're thinking about uh, the theme in this story and you, your choice, you can either write it, snap a picture and upload it to Seesaw. You can type it in this Google Doc. I mean, without getting too crazy, because if there's too many different ways, that could be a lot for the teacher. But really thinking about and asking kids, when are you most engaged? What's working for you? What's not working for you? Uh, what are some ways that you would show me what you know? Or how can you, how can I get you to better show up to school? Um, what's, you know, when are you connecting best? And what do you think it is about that time? Um, and I think a lot of these conversations need to happen, again, back to the conference, but they happen one-on-one or they happen in small groups. Um, but I think giving kids options, both in how they access the material and how they show what they know, um, could be one idea. Um, but then, of course, you know, specific learning differences from different children might require specific interventions that are specific to their needs. Um, but I, I really think you can't go wrong with more one-on-one instruction because then you can tailor your methodology, the strategies, right. what you're talking about, you know, making sure that even, even down to the topics that they're writing about or the books that they're reading are ones that they want to read and they can read. Um, and you can learn a lot about that and support them when you're working with them one-on-one. In the district that I live in, um, you know, they, everyone started traditional and then they went to hybrid with the, basically, I think it was grade six and up. Um, but they felt it was important that they try to keep it traditional with K through five, which I think most people would understand they, they felt like, you know, it's, it's hard to do online learning with kindergartners and first graders and second graders. And I know you said you, you have a second grader. Does, does that make sense? Do you feel like this is harder to do for the younger grades or do you feel like it's equally easy or challenging? I think it's definitely more challenging for younger children um, and also some children with specific special needs. And I would really love to see districts prioritize um, getting the youngest children back into school and getting kids with particular needs back into school. Um, You know, it's tricky for everybody. Let's be honest. You know, teenagers have a hard time because they need to be social and removing that from them. It's not not anyone's first choice, (laughs) let's be honest, right? But if we had to, you know, kind of make hard decisions and prioritize some, I think, you know, even just thinking about kindergartners who may not be able to read, being able to, you know, even just navigate the, the Google Meet and knowing which button is the hang up button, or, or actually that's a, that's a picture, that's a bad example. But, um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of on screen reading that needs to happen to even navigate, like we use a canvas in our district, for example, the learning management system. And so the teachers will set up this page and it says, class meeting, click here, small group, click here, daily schedule, click here. And they can't read the words schedule or class meeting, right? Um, so it's they need parent support to help them navigate everything. And that's hard on caregivers as well. So, um, you know, my second grader is doing okay. I would say her class, there's probably a third of the kids that are having a, a, cha- a very challenging time, but she's in a co-taught classroom. So some of the kids in the class have IEPs. Um my sixth grader is totally independent. She has eight different class periods a day. She navigates from period to period through the LMS and logs into her classes. And I mean, I think it's too much. It's too many hours on screen, but she's doing okay. Um, so I definitely think there is something to be said for younger kids, prioritizing getting younger kids back in person when it's safe, if it's safe, um, you know, spreading the kids out as much as possible. Well, let me, I, just, let me ask. I don't love it hybrid thing, I'll be honest with you. I just think it's really, I mean, I understand why we're doing it. You know, you're reducing the numbers of kids in a building, making sure everyone still has access to the instruction. It's just, it's really two jobs. And Mm -hmm. it's, I think it's just really unfair to be asking teachers to be doing this. I think I say this every time I I talk to you, your relationship with your publisher um, is incredible. Like, I mean, what you guys do in your books, how you, you break information down, and I'm going to try to describe this to someone who's never seen one of your books before. It's not, they're not like a bunch of words on a page. Like they are 
you, you could pick up the book and flip to just about any page and start to learn something immediately because they're broken into little strategies. It's like a strategy guide. Um, and it, it's a lot of charts, a lot of, you know, little breakouts, tips, uh, tech tips and so forth. Um, I, first off, I don't know how you guys did that in how many months did y'all turn this around in four months, I guess. Uh, it was, it was a month. <laughs> Are you kidding? Wow. Crazy, yeah. I mean, did you write nonstop like for, for 30 days? I did like day and night nonstop. Yes. Wow. And, and, <laughs> and I have- had a wonderful editor who really helped me um, a lot. So we would be passing files back and forth to each other. And, you know, she's a master at paring down um, any mm-hmm. wordiness I had into its essence. And we really, really wanted this book. Both of us had this vision that this book would be really like a handbook um, where you could pick it up, turn to the page you need, just get a tip, just try this one thing. Again, in the context of we don't want to overwhelm people. We just want really practical, do it tomorrow, things that are going to make people's life easier and make the teaching joyful because what teachers want more than anything is to be effective, of course. So these are ideas to help you be effective and do it quickly. So, um, so yeah, my editor deserves a lot of credit for helping me pare my words down and be really um, even sort of the templated nature of the predictability of how each idea appears on a page spread. And then the designer, Suzanne Heisler, is just a genius. She's designed my books um, for many years. And starting with the strategies books in 2015, um, which I really pushed to be in full color. My publisher was not doing full color books until this one. Um, I just think that color could be so helpful in helping people, again, flip and find what they need quickly. Mm-hmm. And the color serves the content in a way that helps you get through the book and skim and scan and find what you need. So um, so hats off to Katie Wood Ray, my editor, and Suzanne Heisler, the, the, the brilliant designer of the book. If somebody was flipping through the pages and then they heard that you did this in a month, I mean, it, like you said, the designer alone and, and all your work, I mean, it's just, it's incredible. So, so you talk about uh, offering teachers to say, hey, you're using Google Meets and you may set up like a, a small group room, but then actually have a separate room where a, a student could come out of one room and then go into another room? So when I'm in, when I'm in person with kids, what I try to do with my small group instruction is maintain a sense of the individual within the group. So I pull kids together because, yes, they could benefit from the same strategy or maybe they're at the same part of the writing process and they all could use help with the next step or there's something that unites them, some reason why they're together. And I save time by being efficient and talking to all of them at once about whatever it is, whatever tip or strategy I have for them. But then a really important part of small group work is this guided practice that we were talking about earlier, that they have a chance to try it. And as the teacher, I'm there coaching and giving feedback and also getting feedback. I'm learning how they're doing, where they're struggling and what I need to do next. That part, that coaching part is best done when kids are, it's best done one-on-one. And so in an in-person classroom, what this can look like is I pull them and we sit together on the floor. And then I, after I do my quick little lesson, I spread them out and I move around from child to child. Or we're at a, one of those you know, guided reading tables or kidney-shaped tables, and they're each sitting in their own spot. And I can kind of pivot my body from student to student and work with them one-on-one. Now, online, this doesn't work as well if I have four kids in a, in a video conferencing room with me, if we're all on Zoom together or on Google Meets, because then everybody's really distracted by what I'm saying to one student. I can't like turn and whisper to one. Everyone's hearing me, right? And so what I've done is I'll start off the lesson pulling the kids together, giving them the strategy. And then I move each child into their own individual breakout room. And then as the host of the meeting, I can move myself from room to room and just be like, hello, knock, knock, here I am. So all they're seeing as they're working and all they're hearing, they're just seeing a feed of themselves until I pop in and say hello. And then I close those breakout rooms and then I pull everybody back together. So you probably noticed in a lot of the videos that are included in this book, that's one of the things... Um, that I, that one of the kind of moves that I, I do a lot that allows me to be efficient with my time, see a group of kids for a common need, but still get that individual feedback time with a student. It's so cool. And, and that's really the type of stuff that's in this book. It's these ideas that maybe we aren't thinking of. Have you seen anything that maybe your child's teacher's doing or, or just something floating around like in a Facebook group where you thought, 
that's brilliant. That maybe isn't even in the book. Um, yeah, one idea that I had um, that I didn't record on a video, but it was sort of an idea that I talk about in the book is this idea of an almost conference where I can't get on live with them one on one. But maybe I, I think in the book, I talk about using a Google Doc where I, I pass uh, comments back and forth between the student and, and myself. But one of the teachers I work with um, just tried using Loom, which is a Google extension, to create a little video. And so what she did was she pulled up the uh, Google Doc of the student's work behind her. And then you see a little video of her in the corner. And she's giving feedback on the student's writing and highlighting parts of it and then writing comments. So the, the, the student is seeing her lo- like with the video am I explaining this well? Um, and then links the video in the Google com and the comment on the Google Doc. So the student is not just reading what she what she said, but they're able to see her and hear her. Um, so I loved that idea. It's a kind of a it's kind of like a two version of the almost conference that I talk about in the book. Uh, yeah, that is great. And I think we the second person who's mentioned Loom, I think our co-host mentioned it a while back a few months ago. And, and I think it is a tool. I, I really need to reach out to the Loom folks and, and talk to them because I think a lot of educators are starting to pick up on this. Um, that is really cool. Now, um, last question. And um, I don't want to, again, I'm trying not to be pessimistic, but is there a solution for those that don't have the internet connectivity? I mean, we know this is a problem in rural areas and or even just a financial issue for some students. Uh, is there a decent workaround for that? Mm, that's tricky. I mean, one of the one of the chapters in the book I devote to talking about what are kids doing all day? <laughs> like, what's their work look like? Mm-hmm. And I have a real, um, I have a real slant toward off screen work as much as possible. As much as we use our devices to connect, I want kids to be working on paper, on books, with hands-on materials, with math manipulatives. And so I talk a lot about that in the book. So even when we are able to connect, getting off screen is really helpful. In really rural areas where we don't even have the screen connection, I think we should still be thinking about what are kids doing all day? How can we get the materials? And I have some ideas in the book that I shared from a number of different communities who in the spring figured out you know, distributing books, distributing materials, getting materials back, um, you know, using buses, for example, or a little free library system throughout the town or whatever it is. So I think that's one thing that we can make sure that we're doing is making sure we have books and materials in kids' hands and study supply. Um, In terms of connecting with the teacher, um, I think you could use a telephone. (laughs) You can talk to them on the phone. That works fine. I don't know about you, Nick, but I actually, I'm loving that we're not on video right now, that we're just talking. Um, I feel like the video sometimes is an extra layer where we can just listen to each other's voice and we can have a great conversation without even seeing each other. So um, so we can use a telephone if that's an option. Um, I've also seen teachers, um, and, and this is a lot to ask of teachers, so I'm not saying that everyone has to do this, but if you wanted to see your kids, I've seen teachers who have like end of driveway conferences with kids that they drive around, they go to the child's home, they drop off their baggie of supplies, and they have their half-hour meeting there. And they do that once a week with each student in their class. That's another way to still connect with them, be safe, be distanced um, when, when the internet's not possible. Um, but I've also seen uh, communities, especially in rural areas, where they've used their school buses as Wi-Fi hotspots. So they've driven them around town and parked them in places so that kids can connect. Right. People are getting very creative. Um, so again, if this is a longer term thing, I think some of those longer term solutions um, would be really helpful. Oh, one other thing I heard was teachers sending postcards and self-addressed stamped envelopes and even corresponding by mail. Wow. I mean, again, not as immediate as you know comments in a Google Doc, but uh, it, again, it's it's just about connection. I'm thinking about you. I read your work. Here's some feedback for you, and then gives the child a you know someone to write to and to communicate with as well. So yeah, and certainly uh, yeah, personal just kind of helps on that social emotional uh, side a little bit too. Yeah. Um, well, again, it, the book's incredible. I, I don't know how you pulled this off in a in a month. Like, I mean, not just you, like the entire team of like printing this. I mean, this is not your normal just words on a page book. This is colorful charts, uh, tips, and I can't recommend enough, especially for a teacher headed into any type of holiday break for Thanksgiving or Christmas. Um, it, you could knock this th- book out in, in a couple days, probably. It's about 160 some odd pages. Um, so it's a quick way to learn and be ready to go for the fall. Uh, excellent work. Thanks, Nick. Um, so uh, again, we appreciate you uh, coming on the show and, and you're always welcome to come back. I know you're always churning out these books. So, so thanks again, Jennifer. Thank you. So great talking with you.
going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismiss. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. <laughs>